0: Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. This device that I'm holding in my hand is called a cell phone. And this device, whether you happen to have an iPhone or an Android, whichever style of choice, or even an old-fashioned flip phone, whichever one you so desire to use, we can agree that this device right here has revolutionized and changed the world. It has changed the world in some ways for the good, and to be quite frank with you, in some ways for the bad. This phone right here has changed the way that we communicate with each other. Today, most people would just simply talk to to each other through texting. Maybe you've called people and they responded with a text message. Well, I'm guilty of doing that because I guess my preference is probably texting. But nonetheless, we still have to make phone calls in this age. But texting has literally revolutionized the way we communicate with each other. There's this thing called texting abbreviations or what I like to call, this is my interpretation, texting lingo. And if I were to say LOL, what would you say that means? If I were to say DM, what would that mean? Direct message. Yeah. Now, this one goes back pre-texting. MIA means missing in action. Yeah, Brother Andrew's got that one. All right. Two thumbs up. (laughs) TBH would mean to be honest. That's right. Now, this one I think we would all know T-G-I-F means thank God it's Friday. I'm thinking we should change it to T-G-I-S. Thank God it's Sunday. Come on now, that'll preach right there. How about this one? L-M-K, you know what that means? Let me know. (laughs) Uh, S-M-H, shaking my head, that's right. B-T-W, by the way, I-L-U. I knew somebody loved me out there. (laughs) Now, if I were to say this one, this is the final one for you, PTL. That's right. Praise the Lord. Today, I want to do something revolutionary and contemporary. I want to label the title of my sermon with three letters. It's a texting lingo abbreviation, PTL. PTL. Would you say that with me? PTL. That simply means praise the Lord. We see the, the theme of this passage is praising the Lord. And so today, I want you to understand this, that the theme of our lives, the theme of heaven, the theme of everything about our being should be to praise and glorify and magnify the one named Jesus. Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 7, at least this section that we just read, takes us into the throne room of God and we see the heavenly multitude praising and glorifying and worshiping Jesus Christ high and lifted on his throne. And as we come into this chapter, there's a lot of discussion about who exactly this great multitude is or was or whatever they are. And I want to share with you, we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But before we dive in here into this passage, I want you to understand this, that years ago when I began to go off to Bible college and and study Scripture in more of an academic setting, I began to be introduced to biographies. And I began to study biographies because I thought it was enjoyable as a hobby, but it also inspired me in my walk with Christ to hear about men and women throughout church history and the ages who have been used by God to bring revival to different people. But biblical historians tell me, I don't know how in the world they get this number, but they tell us that the greatest revival in in the Old Testament was the day when when Jonah marched into the city of Nineveh and he preached a one sentence message and he said, Yet in, in 40 days Nineveh shall be destroyed or perish. And we see that these historians tell me that over one million Ninevites came to faith and believing that the God of the Bible was the one and true living God. Throughout history, we've seen many pockets of revival. We've seen nations as a, as a whole and a unit come swarming in to believe the one true God of the Bible is Jesus Christ. I think about George Whitfield. How he plowed the soils here in the colonies, the 13 colonies back in the 1700s, crossing the Atlantic Ocean multiple times by way of boat and sailing. And he would be the one to break open the fallow soils here in this continent. And then a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards would preach the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And then as a result of those two individuals' efforts, and perhaps a few others, we see the first great awakening would, would revolutionize this continent. And people in the thousands would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see in the early 1900s, a, a man by the name of Billy Sunday would travel all over the country setting up his tent and calling it the Sawdust Trail, and he is accredited to leading one million people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We think of the guy back in the, in the later 1800s by the name of C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers who, by the way, never had any formal education in the Word of God. That means he never went to Bible college and never went to seminary. And, and we see that God had a special touch in his life at 16 years of age. Not only did he start preaching, but he started pastoring his first church at the age of 16. And then he moves into London and to pastor that great church that we would know throughout the rest of his ministry from age 19 all the way to the day he died. And there, as he was preaching, he is accredited to, to leading thousands of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So many people we could speak of today, but I also want to Share in 1973. Now, whether you fully agree with the methods and philosophy of Billy Graham, you have to understand this, that he, you can go back and listen to the sermons all you want to. There's no question in my mind that he preached the gospel to more people than any preacher has ever preached to date. And we think about a million souls coming to faith through Billy Sunday. We think about these a million souls coming to faith in Nineveh, but in 1973, when, when Billy Graham went to South Korea, there he's preaching. And by the way, of a, of a translator, as you look out, if you can go and watch the video, I just encourage you to go on YouTube and just type in Billy Graham, Korea, and you'll find him preaching. And you'll see, in a sense, that just what John is writing here in Revelation, a great multitude that nobody can number, we see that Billy Graham is preaching to a multitude that, n- that none of us could ever count. Because it's as if that, that if he looks to his left, as he looks straight ahead, he looks to his right, everywhere he looks, there's just miles and miles and miles and miles of people. And in one day, in one sermon, he preached to over 1.1 million people in person, all gathered outside. As we think about this great multitude, we see the theme is not necessarily about dialing in and trying to figure out the details exactly of who this is because many debate about that. But I think the Bible lets us in on who that is. But, but, but to, to focus on debating that issue would be to, to disregard the theme of the passage. The theme of the passage that this great multitude and these elders and these angels and these living beasts are surrounding the throne in heaven, and they are doing one thing, PTL. They are praising the Lord. And so today, if I could just elaborate on the, on the title of the sermon about praising the Lord, I want to share with you really the, the, of how it all applies to our life today. And that is before we ever get to glory, I think we should join in unison with these believers, these beings and worshiping God. And so here's the statement I want you to walk away with today. Let us join the heavenly multitude in praising the Lord with much gratitude. Let us join the heavenly multitude in praising the Lord with much gratitude. We have so much to be thankful for today. And in addition, not only do we have so much to be thankful for, but we have so much to worship our Lord and Savior for today. I mean, if anything, we can start praising God because quarantine is almost over. Somebody shout amen on that one. Yeah, praise God. Amen. I knew I'd get an amen out of you for something today. We can praise God for for not just the temporal things here, but the focus here in this passage is salvation and provision. So today, I want you to understand this. There's two major thoughts I want to share with you about praising God with great gratitude, And, and I want to give you two reasons of why we can praise God. And I know that you might be asking yourself today, why in the world should I join in unison with these heavenly beings and the heavenly hosts in worshiping Christ? Well, two reasons for you. In verse 9 through 12 is this first one. Praise the Lord because he is our salvation. And then secondly, from verse 13 to 17, praise the Lord because he is our provision. We can praise God because he has the capability and the authority and the power to rescue us and deliver us from our sins. And he has the great capability and power and authority to provide and supply our very needs in this life. Will you come with me as we walk through this text today? Let's look at verses 9 through 12 in Revelation 7. The first thought is this. Why should we join in with the heavenly multitude in praising the Lord? Well, the first, of, first of all, praise the Lord because he is our salvation. Praise the Lord because he is our salvation. Say salvation with me. Salvation. Say it one more time, please. Salvation. That is what it's all about, my friends. Salvation. That's what the Bible is all about. God sending his son on a rescue mission to redeem the world. Check it out now. Look at verse number nine. It says after this. Now notice the first verse of verse number one. It says after these things. We are told this is exactly the same meaning here in the Bible. It says, after these things, this is after this. In other words, the same exact phraseology is being mentioned here. And, and it's a transition right now. And we see that this chapter 7 is an interluded period between seal number 6 and seal number 7. And so what God is giving John is God is giving John a little break about all the 21 judgments that he's about to unleash. And so far we've seen six of them. And he's allowing God, excuse me, God is allowing John to get a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be, be like for all eternity. And that is worshiping Jesus Christ. But before he did this, he gave us an emphasis here about these 144,000 evangelists that God is going to use to bring another great awakening to the world in the seven years of tribulation. And he says after this, and lo, a great multitude, so vast a number Remember earlier in the book of Revelation, the Bible spoke about these myriads. That is, these tens of thousands and thousands and thousands. The Bible speaks of that because in the original language that the New Testament was written in, that was the highest number that they had available for that language. And so now we have billions and trillions and... Even more than that, then I don't even know all the numbers. But but we see here that this is just saying a great multitude that, 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 that he could not number it with the vernacular that he had in his language. And it goes on to say, which no man can number. And he says, I love this part of this verse. It says, of all nations. It says, of all kindreds. It says, of all people of all tongues or languages. Stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And then verse 10, it says this, And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. In verses 9 and 10, kind of spinning off of this idea of praising God for his salvation, understand this, that we can praise the Lord because his salvation is available to every nation. That is the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God is that all kindreds, all nations, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all language, languages and people groups of all ages will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Bible is not a white man's religion. The Bible is not a black man's religion. The Bible is a religious document that God has given to us to where all people can come to faith in Him. Salvation is available for every nation. Can you imagine? what it's going to be like around this throne one day when we join in the heavenly multitude that we're going to be sitting here with people who, who we've never met who are in Africa, people that we've never met who are in Australia, people we've never met who are in Asia, in Europe, in South America, in Central America, in North America, and in Canada. All over the world, we're going to see people worshiping Jesus Christ. And so wouldn't it be great if we just got used to worshiping God with other nationalities and other people groups right here on this side of eternity? Understand this, that they're standing before the throne of God. The same idea back in chapter 4, chapter 5. John is caught up to heaven, getting a glimpse of what it's like to be around the throne of God. And it says they're standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And the Bible says they're clothed with white robes. Listen. The only way you'll be able to stand the full glory and splendor of God on his throne is to be clothed in the garments of his righteousness. I love the verse that Pastor Ringo used to quote all the time. And because he quoted it, I can now quote it. And I hope that because I quote it so often, you'll be able to quote it and it will be engraved into your mind to never be forgotten. Paul said this, and he became sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in him. So check it out now. Jesus came, Jesus died for all people. All nations, the Bible's clear on that. For God so loved the world, God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And here's the heartbeat of God that we can be clothed and wrapped in His righteousness. I know that some days we wear a nice suit like this one. I know some days we might, you ladies, might wear a nice dress like the ones you might have on today. You might have nice garments on, but understand this, that if you are trying to stand in the presence of God in eternity in your own garments, you will not be satisfied because God will say, depart from me. In fact, the Old Testament says all of my righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. I am dirty in God's sight. I am like what John Newton said. I am a wretched sinner. And I need God's righteousness clothed upon me. You know that commercial? The advertisement for the credit card? I think it is, the credit card. It's just, what's in your wallet? <laughs> I think we need to make a new commercial advertising Jesus Christ and say, what's on your garment? Are you being clothed with the righteousness of the flesh? Are you being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Then he goes on to say, and palms in their hands. <laughs> when I first read this, I was like, does that mean that, that my palm is in somebody else's hand? That's <laughs> not what it means. In fact, this phrase only is found in one other time in the Bible. It's found in the Gospel of John when, when Jesus is on that donkey and he's marching into Jerusalem. And you remember, you remember what they were doing? They were shouting out, Hosanna. Hosanna. And then they were, they were waving. What were they waving in the streets? Those palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday because that's the Sunday that they were doing that. And so here we see that that here they're gonna be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They're gonna be having these palms in their hands and they're gonna be waving these, in other words, symbolizing great victory found in Jesus Christ. And we sung earlier today that victory is only found in Jesus. He's defeated death. He's defeated the grave. He's defeated hell. And through him, we can have eternal victory. And then it goes on to say, and he cried with a loud voice. Now I know that the longer we live, Sometimes our body parts don't work as well as they used to. So sometimes our hearing might deteriorate over time, and you got to put in those hearing aids, and you got to turn that volume up, or you got to turn that volume down. You ever been to a concert before, and the volume was so loud you just said, I'm going to take the hearing aids out, if you have hearing aids? Well, check it out now. I know sometimes we, we get a little dissatisfied when the volume is too loud. But the Bible actually says that these people are crying out in unison with a loud voice. In other words, if you've ever been in a stadium and you hear everybody chanting, that chant is so loud it could be heard down street for blocks and blocks and blocks. And so the idea here is this, that these people, this great multitude, are crying out with a loud voice in unison these words, salvation to our God. This word salvation is the same word we get soteriology from. That is the doctrine of salvation, the great theological term. And in other words, this this word salvation, it means that it means to rescue somebody in their sins. And that was that's why Jesus came. He came on a rescue mission, one-time rescue mission, to die on the cross, to rescue all those who believe, believe in his name from the power of darkness and sin. And I do find it interesting here that in chapter four, we see God is on his throne over creation. So that tells me God is sovereign over creation. That means that every atom is put into place. Every constellation is put into place. Every planet is put into place. Everything in this universe is there by God and underneath his control. The Bible says in, in chapter 5 that, that, that Jesus is now on the throne, which is one and the same. The Bible uses God and the Lamb synonymously to, to reveal to us that, that Jesus is God, and he's on the throne. And so in chapter 5, we see that God is on the throne, and he's providing redemption. Jesus is the only one worthy enough to take the scroll or the title deed of the earth to redeem it back underneath his dominion and power. So if God is sovereign over his creation and God is sovereign over dominion here, we see now in chapter 7 that Jesus, God, is on his throne and he is now sovereign also over salvation the three greatest parts about this world and universe and existence is creation, redemption, and salvation. In other words, just as God is is holding everything into place in the universe, and he's going to take dominion back over this world, God is working out everything in your life so that you can come to faith in him. In other words, God is sovereign over your parents. He willed you into existence so you could have those godly parents to instruct you in righteousness. He is sovereign over the fact that you somehow came across a Bible-believing church and then you would hear the gospel expounded or you would be introduced to, the, to faith through a coworker or somebody. God is orchestrating out all those details. That's what it means when God is sovereign over salvation. And it says he is the one sitting on the throne and unto the Lamb. And we have every reason to praise our Lord over salvation, because this salvation is available to every nation. There's not a man, woman, boy, or girl who doesn't have the opportunity to cry out to Jesus and say, God, forgive me of my sins. God, save me and let me spend eternity with you in heaven. The transition is is shifted now the focus is no longer on this great multitude which can't be numbered. But now the the focus is now John's um, eyeglasses and spectacles are now on the angels and the elders and the four beasts or the living creatures. And we see how his salvation is available to all, every nation. But we can also praise him in verses 11 and 12. We can praise the Lord because his salvation is worthy of our adoration. It's worthy. This is the most worthy thing to ever praise Him about. These angelic beings are created beings that God made, and God uses angels to accomplish His will, not just in heaven, but also in earth, as we'll see later in the book of Revelation. It says, These angels stood around this throne in similar fashion, this great multitude. And then the Bible says these elders, and these elders are the 24 elders that are mentioned back in chapter 4 and 5, and these are representatives of the believers of all stages throughout history. And then it it says these four beasts, these, these seraphims and cherubims, or these four living creatures. And it says, not only were they standing, but there came a point in their moments here in this scene where they fall to their knees and fall on their face, and they worship God. And here's what they said. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice the terminology in verse number nine. It says lamb. In verse number 10, it says God and the lamb. In verse number 11, it says God. And then here in verse number 12, it says God. So literally it is revealing to us that the lamb is God and the God is the lamb. And he's crying out, blessing, blessing. This is the same where we get eulogy from. You ever been to a, to a funeral service before? Yeah, I'm sure you all have. You know what a eulogy is? It's to speak well of. Did you hear about that one epitaph one epitaph? You know what an epitaph is, right? It's it's like a summarization of somebody's last words in, of his life. The epitaph was a guy from a guy named Ned. And he said, Here lies Ned. There's nothing to be said, because we like to speak well of the dead. <laughs> I thought that was funny, but maybe you don't. Uh, but. <laughs> but today we get this idea of eulogy means to speak well of. And so these, these ange- the angelic choir and, and then these elders are lifting up praise and speaking well of our God. Because, listen, we can only speak well of God because of what he's done for us. And then he goes on to say glory. This is the same where we get doxology from. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Then it says Wisdom. That is, this is the God who is omniscient and all-knowing and is the one who consumes all knowledge. He can't learn anything and he can't forget anything. Then it says Thanksgiving. He is the one who who deserves our full-hearted gratefulness. And then it goes on to say honor. This gives the idea of giving him the rightful reverence and respect that he deserves. And then it says power. This is the the dynamite power that he is the one who is the ultimate, highest authority and power in the world, and he has all might and strength. And it says all of these seven attributes are what they're praising God about, and it says forever and ever. To our God, I love how it begins with amen, and I love how it ends with amen. You know, a lot of times we think about the book of Revelation, we think about this uh, this dark apocalypse full of all these crazy, you know, flying serpents and crazy, crazy bombs and blah, 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 all this imagery. But I want you to understand this. A unique perspective of studying the book of Revelation is not just all the horrific things that's going to transpire, but going through and studying all the hymns that are mentioned, like this hymn in verse number 12. And it begins with with Amen, and it ends with amen. And in other words, it says, so let it be said throughout all eternity that God is a God who deserves all blessing. God is the God who deserves all glory. God is the God who deserves all wisdom and all thanksgiving and all honor and power and all might. And so let it be forever and ever and ever. So let us join in with the heavenly multitude." And praising the Lord with much gratitude. God has been good to us. God has been good to you. God has been good to me. God has been good to our church, especially just the last year and a half. I mean, we ought to praise God that he has brought us through this most unique, crazy time in American and world history. And we get to live to tell everybody about it. Praise the Lord because he is our salvation. But now let me share with you from verses 13 through 17. The second reason why we have got to join in with this heavenly multitude. Praise the Lord because he is our provision. Praise the Lord because he is our provision. That's what verses 13 through 17 revealed to us. So check it out now. Jesus Christ has the power to deliver us from our sins. But he's also the same God who has the power to provide and supply for our daily needs. God is amazing. He gives us eternal salvation and gives us the great assured promise that one day when we walk through the doorway of death, we get to go to the glorious place the Bible calls heaven. But until we get there, God made us a promise that he'll provide our daily needs. If that doesn't get a deadbeat Baptist shouting hallelujah and lifting their hands and hearts and praise, I don't know what will, because I'm here to tell you something, God saved us, and God provides for us. He's amazing, and he's worthy of our praise. Notice what verses 13 and 14 speak of. It says here, the elders, now again, I'll reiterate this, because sometimes, you know, I've been studying the Bible for, for over half my life, and really, I guess, my whole life, because I grew up in church, but... But sometimes you have to hear things repeated over and over again for them to sink in, especially with difficult passages like the book of Revelation. So these elders are 24 beings that are seated around the throne, and they most likely represent saints from all ages. And so here we see the heavenly elder is now speaking to the earthly elder, John. And he says this. This is a question the heavenly elder asked John, the earthly elder. What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? Let me rephrase that for us. Who are these wearing these white garments and where did they come from? And John replies, he says, Sir, thou knowest. Now it's interesting, when you study this word, sir, this is the same word used throughout the New Testament that the translators would translate Lord. So the question is, is is this elder Jesus Christ? Who is he exactly? Throughout scripture, sometimes this word Lord is translated sir, and sometimes it's translated as Lord. And here in this context, if we were to translate it as Lord, it would be saying my lowercase l-o-r-d. In other words, this, this terminology, sir, you know, or sir, thou knowest, he's saying he's giving this elder the respect and reverence he deserves because he is in a higher position of authority than him. I would say sir to many of you, and many of you would say sir to me. We would say sir to somebody in a governmental position, whether we were in line with their views of politics or not in line with them, just out of respect. And so here John is giving this man or this elder respect that he deserves and saying, sir, you know. And then the elder replies, and he says these words, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who exactly are these people? Who are these ones who are called great multitude? What are they? Well, it's a great question. And I think the key is found in verse number 14 about the phrase great tribulation. In the English Bible, the the term, the two words great tribulation occurs three times. It occurs, of course, right here. But the first time it it was coined was by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24. And when Matthew chapter 24 was being delivered, the message on the Mount of Olives, it is referring to the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. And then in Revelation chapter 2, it's underneath the context of the church of Thyatira. And the church of Thyatira was the church that tolerated sin. And God said, unless you repent of your sin and stand where I stand on sin, Jesus said, I will bring great tribulation upon your church. In other words, he said, I'm going to bring severe trials on your church, not not to to be distinguished from the great tribulation that's about to be taking place. And then here... The elder uses the words that Jesus used two times in the English Bible. Great tribulation. So if Jesus is speaking of great tribulation, Matthew 24, about the seven years, and specifically the last three and a half years, and the church of Thyatira, we know that's not the church in the tribulation period because, you know, chapters 2 and 3 are all about... The present time and and these churches are just representations of churches of all ages and so what Jesus is telling to the churches of all ages throughout history is that if you do not take sin seriously and repent of sin then I'm going to bring judgment and trials upon upon you and here in this passage the Bible is clearly speaking in context from chapter 4 to chapter 19 about the great tribulation period or the three and a half years and so it leads me to believe along with many other Bible teachers and scholars, that this multitude is the multitude that comes to faith in the Great Awakening and the Great Tribulational Period, in the seven years there. As a result of these 144,000 individuals who are selected by God from 12 tribes, 12,000 each, and they go out and they share the gospel. I lean that these 144,000 people are so s- sealed in such a way that not only are they are protected over the judgments of God, but also protected over the persecution of the Antichrist, and they will go into the Millennial Kingdom and populate that, and they're going to be going and sharing the good news of Christ along with the two witnesses and along with the angel that's going to fly through the sky declaring the good news of the kingdom and about how Judgment day is coming, and here it says these are they, these believers, which came out of the great tribulation, referring back to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. So the, the best way to understand the great multitude is that this is the believers who come to faith during the time of the tribulational period. So the greatest awakening is not back in Nineveh. The greatest awakening is not the first or second great awakening here on the American soils or on the Crusades of Billy Graham. But the greatest awakening this world will ever see is during the tribulation period. And it encourages me, and it would encourage these churches in Asia Minor that will receive this letter for the first time, knowing that in the middle of God pouring out his wrath, God is still a God who sends grace and mercy and will save anybody who bows their knee and confesses Jesus is Lord. Verse Number 13 and 14 remind me how God provides by making us clean. Look at verse 14. It says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, in verse 14, And he said, These are they which come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When your clothes are dirty, and that hamper, you know, is not smelling so nice. You take the, those clothes and you go to your washing room and you take them and you pour them into the washing machine and you take your Tide or whatever detergent you use these days, Seventh Generation or Myers or doTERRA, whatever it is, you put that detergent in there and there it cleans them and makes them smelling nice and fresh again. The only way you'll ever smell fresh in the eyes of God is to be washed in His blood That's the only way, my friends. The only way for your sins to be remitted and removed from the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, is by allowing Jesus Christ to take your sins and to wash them and purge them with his blood. Verse 15 reminds me how God provides by letting us serve him. The first part of verse 15, it says, therefore, so because, because they have been washed in the blood of the lamb, their sins are now washed. That's the only way to be clothed in Christ's righteousness and to, be, and to have your sins washed by his blood is the only way you can, barring the Old Testament phraseology, the only way man can ever stand in the Shekinah glory of God. That is the full glory and splendor of God on his throne. The only way you'll be able to not die and be consumed in his magnificent glory is to be clothed in his righteousness and washed in in his blood. So it says, therefore, are they before the throne of God? It says, that's why they're there, because they've been redeemed. They've been saved. They've been born again. And it says, and serve him day and night in his temple. God provides us, excuse me, God provides by letting us serve him. Now, a lot of discussion amongst commentators about this word temple, some are gonna lean towards, this is referring to the millennial kingdom, and some are gonna lean towards this is referring to heaven. I think it is most likely a combination of both because we'll see that there will be people serving God and Christ in the millennium, the thousand years. But the whole purpose of heaven, the whole purpose of heaven is that we will all serve Jesus Christ and bow to his lordship and say, whatever you want me to do, I will do. And there will ultimately be able to do it. Then the Bible goes on to say, which by the way, before we move on, don't you think that right now in this life, it'll be a good idea to learn how to serve him so that when you get to heaven, you'll be able to better know how to serve him then? Don't you think right now that it'll be a good idea to submit to his will and his lordship and his kingship right now and allow him to be the Lord of your life and the king of your heart right now so that one day when you get to heaven, it'll be so easy to bow before him and worship him with service. Which, by the way, service is worship, and worship is service. I have no idea how in the world we got this whole idea that worship is only singing songs. Worship is the act of service. And so we can worship God by serving Him. Day and night, it is simple. In other words, for every moment of every day, in our minds, we still think of time in time with minutes and seconds and hours. And so when we get to eternity every waking movement, we will be able to serve him because we will be in his presence. But then it says, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. It says God provides by giving us his presence. Think about this. Back in the Old Testament, in the days of the wilderness journey, God gave the Israelites specific instructions on how to erect the tabernacle. You know, the tent. That's how they would worship him before the great temple of Solomon. And then they were given instructions to build that great temple and there in 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 both settings they had a spot in there where god's glory his presence would come down and hover over the ark of the covenant and then we see in the gospel of john chapter one where the bible says that that jesus came to dwell among us in other words God's presence came and tabernacled amongst the Old Testament saints in the tabernacle and temple. And God the Son came to tabernacle and dwell amongst humanity by clothing himself with flesh and dying on the cross so that we could live with him in eternity. But then, check it out now, the same phrase here is this, that he who sits on the throne shall dwell among them. So among this great multitude. He is saying, Here, that just as God tabernacled among the Jews in the Old Testament, just as Jesus came and tabernacled among humanity in the New Testament era, so in the eternal era, we will be able to be underneath the dwelling place and tabernacle of Almighty God forever and never and never. His presence will ever be in our presence, and our presence will ever be in His presence. And these last two verses are some of the most encouraging thoughts about the next era, eternity. Verse 6 reminds me how God provides by supplying our needs. Look at verse 6. It says, They shall hunger no more, speaking about this great multitude. Neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Verse 16 of Revelation chapter 7 reminds me of what... Is said in verse 14 about these who came out of great tribulation, referring back to this great multitude, which leads me to believe that that this great multitude is going to go through extensive persecution that we've never seen before in such a way that they'll have to either receive the mark of the beast or they will not eat, they will not drink, and they might become homeless and have to live on the streets. And so, can you imagine not being able to buy food, not being able to have water to drink, how long you'll live without eating or drinking, And then how cold you would get if it's wintertime. How hot you would get out in the summer with the the sun beaming down on you. And here, this is just reminding us that that it is God who provides our needs. Going back to the wilderness journey where God rained down manna from heaven to feed the Israelites, just as God gave them the the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and, and God is gonna do all of that, and he did it for them, and he's gonna do it for you and me. And he is gonna be our source of provision in the age of eternity, and he will feed us. He will give us water to drink, and he will provide us light and warmth for all eternity. And then verse 17 reminds us how God Provides by being our shepherd, he is the great shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the good shepherd, as he said. Remember what the psalmist David said? He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. My friends, that verse is reminding us how Jesus Christ is our shepherd. How Peter said that Jesus is the bishop and shepherd of our souls. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I give my life for the sheep. And here we see the lamb is in view now this perspective of God as the lamb, which is in the middle of the throne. The Bible says that he shall feed this multitude. He shall lead this multitude to fountains of water, just as Jesus gave to that woman at the well the water to drink. So Jesus will will give us the waters that will never run dry. And so as you can imagine, if these tribulation saints... And, of course, we understand persecution has taken place throughout all ages, Old Testament New Testament alike. But this is going to be extremely intensified. And imagine going through this season of persecution and great tribulation, there's going to be many people who are going to be weeping and crying. And the Bible says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's coming a day when all those tears that you've shed will be no more. There's coming a day when, when, when the, the pain and the agony and the turmoil will be no more. You know, we think about hell as being a place of eternal agony, a place of fire forever and ever and ever. But I think the worst part about hell is that God's presence, like in the throne room, will not be in that moment of eternity. And my friends, the only way to escape that is through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is all about God pouring out his wrath upon this unbelieving, apostate world. And in the midst of his wrath, he answers Habakkuk's prayer and he gives mercy. To this great multitude who comes to faith. All of us in our lives, we go through trials. Many of you are no exception. But I want to take you back to the 1850s, just very briefly, and tell you about this lady by the name of Eliza Hewitt. She was born in 1851 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She went to school locally and graduated as valedictorian of the girls' normal school. She then began teaching in the Philadelphia area. One day, while overseeing her students in the playground, she unfortunately suffered a severe back injury and was forced to bed for months, dealing with the pain the rest of her life. Although Eliza could have been resentful and no one would have blamed her, she felt the presence of the Lord while confined to that bed. She started studying literature and English while recovering from her injury. Barely did she know that she was being prepared by God to write poetry and hymns. And these two subjects would prove very useful. As Eliza recovered some of her strength in later years, she was able to get around slowly. She attended the summer Methodist camp meeting in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. It was there that she met a woman by the name of Emily D. Wilson. And they formed a great friendship. They would worship God together. They would study scripture together. And they would write songs of worship together. And most of their songs were geared for children in Sunday school. But this song right here went on to just touch the world. And was published in 1898 in the Pentecostal praises for the first time. And a woman who was confined to a bid for a majority of her life wrote these words about what John is seeing in Revelation 7. She said, Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed he'll prepare for us a place. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky. But when traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. Onward to the prize before us. Soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Let us join the heavenly multitude and praising the Lord with much gratitude. My friends, we can praise our Lord because he is our salvation and he is our provision. He has the ability to deliver you and me and anybody who calls out to him from our sins. And he has the capability of providing for our daily needs. My friends, it's all about three letters today. P-T-L. May God help us to praise the Lord. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.